Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 16 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 16, we're back on the cross time caper with Excalibur number 15, TechNet Impossible Missions, originally published in November 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzechowski and Michael Heisler on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. And yes, our episode numbering is going to be screwed up forevermore because of that Mojo Mayhem episode. Sorry, and you're welcome. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. This issue is packed in a mostly good way, in the sense that there's lots to discuss, and we've got a marvelous, multi-talented guest to help sort through it all. But first, you get to hear from the usual suspects. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about lots of sexy things in lots of sexy places, including lots of your favorite comic book websites and academic journals, and on another podcast called Three Panel Contrast. Among my ongoing projects, I co-write monthly reviews for the Nightcrawler-led Way of X book over at Comics XF, which, along with this podcast, is part of my most important job of being Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR man. Manager. That was an easy job for Excal number 14 and is even easier here, which features some spectacular Wagner charm, which we will talk about. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Take it away. I am the Omniversal Majesty Opal Loons Maverfot. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am a lot of things. I'm an academic that studies comic books and other pop culture, including movies and TV and wrestling and in comic books. I, I might have said that already. I don't know. It's deja vu today. <laughs> um, but, um, but I am the host of another podcast called Vox Popcast, where we talk about pop culture. I'm really looking forward to this, and it has nothing to do with me taking a break from grading. This is just, this is some good stuff that's going to have a lot of, you know, I like to talk about race and class and sex and gender. And this book has that, it has a lot of it. So I'm looking forward to it today. It definitely does. Andrew, take it away. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big study of Chris Claremont's work um, with a microblogging social media wing. Um, but I'm getting worse at that every day because the last two <laughs> threads I wrote are 14 tweets long, which would suggest <laughs> I don't understand how Twitter works. Oh, it was so good, though, the Wolverine one today. I, I always read it first thing in the morning, Claremont Run. I don't know if you know that I do that, but I totally do. It's like my Thank morning you. thing, and like it was great. And with the no crop, like I got to see that whole oh, lovely no Wolverine image, like big. That really drew me in even more than usual. It looked lovely. Our worthy crew is joined this week by a wonderful scholar friend, Uncanny Dazzler himself, Dr. Nicholas Miller. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Dr. Nick Miller is an assistant professor at Valdosta State University, but is moving to Lexington, Kentucky this summer to teach ELA to 7th and 8th grade students at Sayre School. Nick is co-editing a forthcoming collection on the cultural politics of X-Men, the animated series with Jeremy Carnes and Margaret Galvan, which we're all very much looking forward to. We had Margaret on a couple of episodes ago. We're so excited to have you, Nick. 
And I got to ask you, because we haven't really talked about it much, but is this your first time encountering Excalibur? It is not. Uh, although I didn't encounter it when it was first coming out, like it seems several people on the podcast have. I really checked out Excalibur the first time somewhere around 2005, 2006, uh, when I first visited a local comic shop uh, in East Lansing. And I think it was actually a volume called Excalibur Classic. It was the collected issues that I was looking at there. I really liked the cover, uh, in particular Kitty's outfit on the cover uh, of that particular volume. And I read two of those volumes while I was there in East Lansing, finishing up my undergraduate degree. Uh, I never got at that point up to the cross time caper. So what we're talking about today was relatively new material uh, for me when I revisited Excalibur in 2018. That was a year that I was preparing for a course on X-Men uh, when I was teaching at Holland's University. And I was trying to actually go through some of these various series in order as best I could. And so I picked up the Epic Collection back in 2018. Weirdly, that ended up being the first X-Men comic that my youngest child, Lorelai, ever read. Uh, at one point, we were road tripping, and I just handed it to her as something to read while we were road tripping, and she read through the entire thing. I don't think she understood most of it or had a clue what was going on, but that actually seems perhaps fitting for anybody that's encountering Excalibur for the first time. But she stayed with it because she really loved the artwork and loved many of the characters that were showing up in the comic. So that was my sort of Excalibur history right there. I so wish I'd had this series when I was younger. I really think I would have loved it to pieces. So did you end up teaching any Excalibur in your course? So I didn't. In fact, I didn't actually get to teach that particular course because I oh. left for Alaska State uh, oh. at that moment. Um, so uh, that course is still sitting there in the back pocket, all ready to go at some point uh, when the time comes. It was part of a first year seminar that I was planning. I've had a chance to teach a number of X-Men comics in other comics related courses, yeah. but I haven't had a chance to teach the dedicated X-Men course yet. So fingers crossed at some point. I was just joking with, I'm teaching a superheroes course as we're recording this, and I was just joking with my students that I do a little story time with them at the end of the lecture where like I show them a comic book issue related to whatever we talked about and kind of do a little nerdy conversation about them just to, you know, get to know me and so they actually see my face on camera instead of just my voice doing guided PowerPoints. And I did Excalibur number one for a week on X-Men in which Andrew was actually nice enough to contribute a guest lecture as well. So <laughs> everybody's involved in teaching my class apparently. <laughs> but, but yeah, I got to do like a little speech about like why Nightcrawler is great and talk about Excalibur number one. And I said in my little story time, I did not put anything in which Nightcrawler is really great on the course because I'm a scholar who cares about integrity and I picked the things that were best to teach and not the things that show my favorite characters in a positive light and I hope you respect how difficult that was. <laughs> I mean, if they've actually seen any of your other writing, they will actually know how difficult that was. I mean, you are so fantastic at weaving in your personal narrative and your personal fandom to the things that you write about and I think you recently put out a piece with the Middle Spaces, right, that was doing that same type of work with an issue of Excalibur, right? Sort of helping us to understand how we can engage with these characters, both, as you say, sort of with integrity, but also as fans, as people who love these characters deeply. Yeah, well, thank you, Nick. And Nick, you are a regular writer for Middle Spaces as well, which we should have included in your bio, but we'll link it in the show notes. Sounds good. <laughs> but so what's your history with X-Men comics then? Did you read those kind of previously while you were growing up? So I eventually got around to reading some X-Men comics, but for the most part, when I was growing up, I was reading Archie Comics Digest that you could pull off of the supermarket shelf. Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't have a local comic shop. I grew up in a very small rural town in mid-Michigan. And so it was either that or reading the Sunday Funnies, uh, which meant that I read a lot of Calvin and Hobbes and Garfield and Beetle Bailey and would read the Doonesbury comics and have no idea what they were talking about, right? But <laughs> that was what was available to me. That was what is accessible to me up until I got into middle school. Uh, and so somewhere around 1991, my lo local library, those the small, tiny little public library in my town started offering some comics that you could read while you were there. Uh, they had one of those spinning rack things where they would feature some comics. And then what I remember most clearly was that they had this big wicker basket in the corner where they would just toss issues of comics that you could leaf through and read through while you were sitting there in the library. Most of them were a year or more old. None of them were in order. Some of them were not even from the same titles. But my first experience with X-Men happened when I pulled it out of one of those wicker baskets or out of that wicker basket. And it happened to be X-Men number 244, which you may know as Ladies' Night, okay. a really great issue, or one that kicked off my obsession with Dazzler that continues to this day, and gave me a very different sense of what the whole X-Men universe was about than, I suppose, other people who had been reading it from the beginning. So that's actually where my uh, initial encounter with the X-Men happened. I love that, because my initial kind of superhero love was Lois and Clark New Adventures of Superman when I was like 11, 12. And so I had this perception of the superhero genre like, oh, obviously it's a romantic comedy. 
because that was like my entry point, right? So it's interesting, you know, if we can have these entry points that really can, depending, like really shape kind of our perception about what this genre is. And I think telling those kind of origin stories is really important to kind of having that understanding that people do have different sort of origin points and different perceptions depending on what they encountered first. So I love that story so much. It's so right. good. And I think that your point there is really interesting. When I, I taught an introduction to comics as literature course this past summer, and I actually chose to open with some of the Dazzler solo series because I wanted students to think about the superhero genre not necessarily having its origin points or its definitive points in a Superman or a Batman, but that it has these links between what we now consider the superhero genre and romance, for example, right? And so working through Dazzler as my introduction to superhero comics was actually a really fun starting point. And I think something that we should consider more often in terms of how we frame our encounters with superheroes. Oh, man, people who don't already know your work are going to be so excited to <laughs> encounter your Dazzler writing. I'm so excited to link that in our show notes. Um, okay, let's get into our issue summary. And we'll come back to some of these first impressions in a little bit. I know we've got many lovely listeners reading along with the pod for for those of us who haven't felt up to digging their floppies out of a long box we will start as usual with a brief plot summary excalibur number 15 TechNet impossible missions opens on brighton pier where nigel frobisher is delivering the details of the mission satyr courtney which is what i'm calling her from now on has hired them for <laughs> she wants them to rescue brian braddock's older brother jamie braddock from a seeming supervillain named doc croc leader of a fictional african country called mbangawi canonically located between kenya and tanzania and i will note we're kind of making up a pronunciation for this fictional place, but we will try to stick with it. TechNet teleports directly to Mbengawi and has little trouble handling the guards, at least until they arrive in the chamber where Doc Croc is holding Jamie Braddock, seemingly torturing him. Doc Croc sprays TechNet's leader, Gatecrasher, with a hallucinogenic gas that causes her to perceive Jamie's true nature as a poacher and slaver. She's appalled, but before she can act on that, the lizard who hangs out on her shoulder is seized by some kind of fit and teleports Jamie, Doc Croc, and TechNet back to Brighton. While all this is going on, we check back in intermittently with Excalibur, who are still, of course, on their cross-time caper. We see them running from some very British Native Americans while wearing fetching gender and species bending get-ups in a Wild West-inspired scenario, collecting ingredients for magic potions in the lair of a mad scientist doppelganger who wants to switch the brains of Alistair and Rachel. There's also evidence of them working at a carnival and Captain Britain becoming a communist champion. At one point, they arrive back in the 616 but accidentally reactivate Widget via an outpouring of energy from Rachel after another strange mini-fusion with Megan. Wonder what's going on there? Back in the TechNet story, everyone is arguing and Jamie is walking free, which is bad news. Gatecrasher sends Bodybag to recapture Jamie and Jamie's true power is revealed. He sees reality as an amalgam of strings, which he can control by pulling them. He pulls Bodybag's string with gruesome results. The other members of TechNet don't have any more success in doing Jamie. Doc Croc steps in to try, there's an explosion, and we don't really know what happens. But Nigel Frobisher soon shows up to take Jamie back to Satter Courtney with promises of world domination. In the final scene, the TechNet has been convinced through Jamie's manipulations that their mission was a success. They're kicking back celebrating when Thug complains of a disruption in the shower. It's a tiny crocodile with cybernetic implants, apparently all that's left of Doc Croc. So before we get into our discussion, I just want to note some general historical context for the political allegory in the TechNet part of this story. So Jamie Braddock is allegorically linked here to Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark Thatcher, who was, like Jamie, involved in car racing and some unsavory affairs in Middle Eastern and African countries, including South Africa, a country Margaret Thatcher also had a complicated relationship with, which is a very kind way of saying she was a repulsive racist who supported apartheid. Mark Thatcher's own unsavory story continues well into the 21st century. He was arrested in South Africa in 2004 for helping fund the Equatorial Guinea coup d'etat. Basically, he was trying to help install a different ruler in the interest of getting access to oil contracts. So, you know, an all-around swell guy. Also, a few helpful bits of comics continuity. So Doc Crocs, actually a character from the Captain Britain comics. He was an agent for RCX, which was this government agency that was sort of responsible for dealing with the aftermath of the Jasper's Warp event. He was gravely injured in the pages of Jamie Delano and Alan Davis's run on Captain Britain, which is why he got all these cybernetic implants before going back home to take his hereditary title as king. Readers who read the Delano Davis stories will also recall that Brian knows about Jamie's villainy. In Captain Britain Volume 2, Number 9 from 1985, Brian leaves Jamie in the clutches of Doc Croc when he finds out that his brother's poaching and slave trading has been happening. So the story picks up in 
in the aftermath of that. So, okay, that was a lot of context and I'm really tired of talking, (laughs) but I felt it was kind of important to lay that all on the table so that we're all kind of starting from, from the same point. So we'll start with you, Nick, in terms of first impressions, like any immediate takeaways from this issue, like things that particularly stood out for you to you that you're anxious to talk about right off the bat? I mean, I'm happy to go with the flow in terms of what we talk about, but it's really interesting listening to you talk about political allegory and the comics continuity, because even though that makes up in many ways so much of the meat of this issue, it is not at all what I focused on when I was reading it. All I wanted to think about as I was reading this comic was that, you know, Excalibur, despite the fact that it's being published on the heels of a deeply homophobic Jim Shooter era at Marvel, (laughs) is a text in which none of the characters are what you might call this mythical category of heterosexual, right? Like, this is an incredibly queer comic, and this is one of the issues in which I feel that perhaps most strongly. And I don't know, like for me, I want to keep thinking about that, especially obviously with the incident that we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point with Kurt and Brian having their exchange about having a lovely dance together, etc. But it's a really sort of interesting comic when you think about this in terms of the narratives of, of desire that are so interwoven, right? Like we can have Jamie Braddock pulling on threads all we want, but those threads to me in some sense are these interwoven threads of desire that are crisscrossing across characters in this particular issue, especially, but in the series as a whole. So I just keep thinking about how queer a comic this is. Um, That's where my first impression really went. Yeah, definitely my primary memory of this issue was the Kurt and Brian thing. And then when I was like, oh, there's this whole political allegory that is actually most of the issue. We should probably talk about that and make it a big (laughs) part of the show. Other other first impressions before we get into some more focused discussion? Uh, I just love the visuals of TechNet. I'll throw that out there. That's something that I really, really enjoy from this. And again, I, I was thinking a lot about the experience of my younger daughter reading through this and I can imagine this as being a sequence in which she was really enjoying it because those particular panels, right, where you have these various characters as part of TechNet interacting are really visually stunning in certain ways. So that was something that I think I knew before, but definitely hit home when I was reading through it this time. I like TechNet more and more each time we see them. And especially here because they get some, Gatecrasher in particular, gets some interesting character development, which is nice to see. She becomes sort of more than a one-note character in some interesting ways. Um, but how about you, Andrew and Mav? Any first impressions? Uh, I really like the the sort of structural narrative juxtaposition of um, you, you've got this Excalibur clip episode happening uh, and then yeah. interspersed with that is this this genuine building of an antagonist and a menace that can impose them so you get these scenes of them off having you know fun little adventures um, well the big bad is is slowly taking shape so there's this fun sense of like uh, the bad guy sneaking sneaking up on them I guess or catching them sleeping kind of thing that I think adds to Jamie's menace a little bit for me uh, and, and also creates a nice kind of one to punch in terms of you know drama and comic relief that's funny because i was going to complain about the juxtaposition in terms of the seriousness of the one story is sort of negatively impacting the silliness of the other and vice versa but now that you mentioned it in terms of the build of jamie i actually like the juxtaposition a lot better but we'll get back to that when we talk about the allegory mav any first impressions yeah so i love this book I love this book a lot, and there are several reasons. For one thing, we complained in the the Nazi issues, for <laughs> lack of a better term, that we felt it was uncomfortable having, you know, trying to have this serious discussion in the midst of what was essentially a funny book. And I said, it can be done, but it has to be done with care. This is doing it with care. This is what care looks like. And what's amazing to me with it is there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really make sense. I mean, Anna, your 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 review of it that you just sort of did was way more chronological than this book is, <laughs> and a lot yeah. more a lot more coherent. And I say that not as a diss because it is so engaging the way and it is. This is a frantic issue. This is an issue wherein Excalibur are side characters. You are forced to like sort of be in the head of and be positioned as the protagonist for this book is Gatecrasher. This is her yeah. story, and you are forced to like sort of inhabit and identify with the worldview of this character that is an American reader in 1989, 90, whatever year it is right now, you don't know much about. She's just been a villain in a couple of issues with no motivation. And this humanizes her in a very real way. And it will make you care about her moving forward in a very real way. And then on top of that, you have the stuff with Jamie, which is just bizarre and and intriguing. And then you have the actual 
Excalibur story, you know, all four or five pages of it, whatever. Like you said that you, you remembered the stuff with Kurt and Brian. That's two panels. That's, a, that's, all, that's all the story gets. But <laughs> Two very important panels. Yes, absolutely. It's great. I think there's very important stuff that, like, I didn't count. But I'd be surprised if Kitty has six lines in this entire issue. And I think she has major character development throughout it uh, that I think is very important. I think there's so much going on here. It shows you that you can do a story that is, I mean, Nick talked about not having context and, you know, just sort of, you know, that being a way to read Excalibur. From the very beginning of our show, we said Excalibur is a book where that first issue is, you know, here's some training wheels because the rest of this is not going to make a lot of sense. We're not going to slow down for you. We're going to throw stuff out there and you're going to have to deal with it. This is dealing with it. And I and it was so enjoyable to read. I, I did like our last couple of, issue, of issues where we're, you know, where we're dealing with Billy the Kid and stuff. But this is this is just breakneck speed Excalibur at its best for me. Yeah, I love the breakneck thing that you're talking about, dashing back and forth that Excalibur is doing in the background of this larger story. But OK, let's talk about the allegory, because I am actually surprised that you folks enjoyed it so much, because I was thinking we were going to be here talking about how problematic it was and i think that there are aspects of it that we can deal with oh, i'm here but... for that <laughs> yeah well... <laughs> talk about how problematic it is that's <laughs> well just well, we can talk about both though because i think that both arguments are certainly valid because i think it's definitely trying to tell a way more complex story and mm -hmm. definitely i 100 percent agree with you so much better than the nazi story yeah. so 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 much better but but let's talk about it so the allegory here with this mark thatcher thing and everything it's not like a direct allegory but he's definitely trying to like evoke mark thatcher through the car racing thing through the upper class british twitness of him what's kind of going on here in terms of what is this allegory kind of doing for us i mean i gave us the plot summary but what's going on with someone like a character of doc croc who seems like he's going to be a supervillain in this story and is ultimately a hero if you'd read the previous captain britain comics you would already know about this character if you're just jumping in here which i certainly would have been the first time i read this you don't really know that context for the character he's set up in a lot of sort of exotic visual language a lot of monstrous visual language which reads a certain way in this space in this context with his blackness so what's going on with a character like that like is this subverting certain expectations that we'll have about this exotic narrative is that kind of where the kind of success of the allegory comes in i mean does he does he really subvert that though i mean I, yeah i think one of the questions that i have and, and i don't know the sort of continuity in the history of doc croc so my my limited window of experience with doc croc is really in this issue for the most part and you know one of the things that I immediately jumped to is that we have these images of sort of famished, uh, weak, impoverished African peoples, right? Black peoples that we are seeing elsewhere in the comic. And then you have this leader figure who has to be cybernetically enhanced in some ways, right? That they have had to be stitched together through presumably Western technologies, etc. I mean, there's something still going on about this sort of colonialist narrative of improvement that seems tied to Doc Croc in ways that I find really fraught and uncomfortable. Other thoughts? about the allegory. I mean, we've complained before about this title not reckoning with the colonial context or legacy of kind of Captain Britain and his identity and even his family and his heredity. Making Jamie a villain surely does that a little bit, doesn't it? Well, I was just going to say on the subject of Doc Croc, because I, I agree with Nick. Like, I, I think it's not there. There's a theory by Jan Peters called um, techno-cannibalism, which suggests that when you incorporate these sort of Afro-futurist elements, um, but you still have the characters conforming broadly to stereotypes, despite the technological enhancement, um, you're reinforcing this idea that the primitive is like the natural state. Uh, and Doc Croc, he's got these cool cybernetics. He doesn't do anything with them. He, he's still uh, um, basically a, a wizard and that's it. We don't see him, you know, shooting laser cannons effectively or anything like that. So as a character who embraces these sort of different symbols, he has the potential to make kind of a cool Afrofuturist argument, but it doesn't happen. He, he falls right back into stereotype. I have a slightly alternate reading of it, which is that he does do something with them and then he loses off panel and, that, <laughs> yeah. and that's kind of what's interesting to me about it it is okay so again this is 1989 this is a myth of apartheid story mm -hmm. and i think what what we have to like look at if we're gonna if we're gonna consider it an allegory for what was actually going on with mark thatcher which i think is a fair reading that, that anna suggested then we have to consider it an allegory and not a solution. This is Animal Farm. This is telling the story as best they could through another lens and not suggesting, and so here's how you make racism better. You know, what ends up happening in this is the colonial forces, the British 
forces come in and they just trample over the African nation. The end. That's the story. Putting myself back in the headspace of where I was in 1989, I'm sort of really into this at this point. You know, I'm very, um, I don't know how much uh, I'm the, the one black person, but, and I'm also of the right age. I'm boycotting Reebok at this point in my real life because of sneaker connections to South Africa. I'm, you know, wandering around wearing Africa medallions. And yeah, you know, he tries to rise up and he gets stopped. And that's interesting. I don't know that it makes me think, I mean, could it have been done better? Sure. But I, I don't know that it makes me think, oh, they're solving this so much as, oh my God, a comic book just acknowledged apartheid in South Africa. This was big for me. So the last time we talked about this is like Fantastic Four in 1972, which is a story where Johnny Storm and Ben Grimm go to a fictional African country to help save T'Challa, the Black Panther, who has been captured by his neighbors who don't recognize him as king. The story is more complicated than that. But they basically get there and they discover that, oh my God, there's countries in Africa that do racism. And they solve this problem by Ben punching racism, destroying the castle of racism. <laughs> and then they walk away, walking over the uh, over the the colored versus whites entrance sign. And that's the end of the book, never to be mentioned again. This is also the story in which, you know, in trying to deal with the story about apartheid, Black Panther decides that he wants to change his name to Black yep. Leopard yep. so as to avoid association with the Black Panthers in America because he doesn't doesn't want to be political it is a very problematic complicated story written by people trying to do their best as middle-class white men in america who just found out there was racism yesterday and and they're doing their best and not doing good enough because as far as i can tell they didn't bother to ask anybody who knew anything in order to write that story i think it's a very interesting story that i i mean obviously i wrote a chapter in a book about it so i think it's a interesting story that should be considered but that's the problematic way. This here, this is Claremont going, I don't have the answers. This is what I see. And to me, that's more interesting. Well, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, I think it's a really interesting reading of that. And maybe my my default mode is not to sort of give Claremont the benefit of the doubt. Um, maybe that's my default mode with everything. But yeah. I also wonder, you know, and I don't have the sort of historical continuity to back this up, but I, I was reading this and I couldn't help go, but go back to Robert Jones Jr.'s essay in the middle spaces on Cyborg, right? And trying to think about about the ways in which this sort of mechanized black body in the same way that we see with Doc Croc is both a representation, as you're pointing out, of white supremacy's effect on black bodies, but also at the same point is engaging in an act of neutering that body as well, right? And so in that sense, this, this character of Doc Croc does the sort of representation side of things. It shows us the physical effects of colonialism, but also ends with us having a mechanized crocodile, this sort of cutesy at the end of the issue, yeah. right? In ways that do nothing more than represent, right? And I think that maybe it's the sort of 21st century critical race theory version of me right now, but I want to see a lot more than just representation these days, right? And, and I know that this is me reading the present back onto the past, but in this current moment, it seems insufficient to me to just say that, sure, this is representing what colonialism does, because we've had decades now of, of narratives demonstrating colonial violence um, without being able to still celebrate Black excellence, right? And I think that Doc Rock doesn't get that moment of Black excellence that I would like to see out of a character like this, even though morally he seems to be in a pretty decent place here. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's the thing where there's something sort of interesting going on with TechNet being in a specifically gatecrasher being the point of view characters for this kind of exploration because they are outsider figures and yet they're a fantastic category of outsiderness so that's a little bit of a weird interesting but like definitely weird choice i would have yeah definitely liked to see this sort of more truly from the perspective of like the real world other rather than like the fantastical other because mm -hmm. it's a bit of a choice but at the same time i think it's really important to emphasize this thing of we can go too hard on stories sometimes when we're not acknowledging kind of the way that we all as readers, you know, have certain expectations about what a politically perfect story is, but we also, as like fan readers, from like our positions of experience or whatever, and when we're encountering these stories, have like, <laughs> like tempered expectations of what we expect a comic book that is an X-Men funny book to do, right? As Mav was saying, we don't expect this comic or we shouldn't expect this comic to solve apartheid. We shouldn't expect this comic to have solutions to grand political problems 
problems. But I really liked what you were saying, Mav, that what this comic does is it does draw attention to some of these problems. And it does, you know, give a focus to things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in any comic book from around this time. So I think it is important to situate it in that context as well. So I'm really happy that you mentioned that, Mav. It's one of those things that, I mean, you talked about some of the problems of the shooter area of, of Marvel. And it's not just Gem Shooter, but just, you know, where the CCA was, where Marvel was, where the kinds of stories they were telling. To this day, I don't know how they got the level of kink and queerness and just, you know, <laughs> random sex that goes on in Excalibur. I yeah. don't know how they got that past the CCA. That should never been have been allowed to happen. I'm glad it did. This is similar. The fact that they were able to do a story that directly, not, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, in this era, there's a lot of Black Panther ignoring racism it makes no sense in avengers books and that's happening right now in 1989 in random black panther appearances he is just another superhero who doesn't seem to care about you know race at all that that happens later like the kinds of stuff that the movie is based on that happens later in dc earlier in the 70s you had attempts from like john stewart as a green lantern to deal with this you'd had attempts in marvel from falcon and from luke cage but that dies out by the mid 80s and late 80s so the fact that this happened was in its way exciting to me and again i don't i don't think it's perfect i do think that nick has a good point about you know it's very hard to read it without putting our current critical lens on it and by our current critical lens yeah it doesn't do much but given again for me in 1989 this is the first thing i've seen in 17 years that even addresses yeah. the problem so it was progressive for then and i don't you know i don't think that gives it a pass but i do think it is it bears mentioning right mm -hmm. and i think that also speaks perhaps again to the fact that we encounter these in different ways right for me i didn't encounter this until the 21st century right, right. i was right and again like you say that doesn't give it a pass right but i also think it goes back to anna's question earlier about you know is excalibur the place to sort of raise this issue if they can't do it well um and i and that's the thing that i think i'm struggling with i don't think they do that well with this i don't think they do that well with the question of indigeneity and i worry that the sort of haha -ha jokeness of this often loses some of the potential seriousness of the issues that are at play whereas i think it's a lot easier because we can often couch sort of queerness within whiteness to do the sort of kink and the sexuality etc that is so much a part of this comic because it somehow still seems less threatening than actually looking at white supremacy and the way that it functions on a global scale scale right fair i mean the counterpoint to that if i'm going to be charitable is that you can use a book like this to have those cultural critiques where you're not expecting in them and that can have an effect and definitely when we see the letters that are going to be in response to this issue sort of a, a few episodes from now people were really moved by this issue like i mean people are like i was picking up excalibur i didn't expect to have this moving political allegory but people are like moved by the story and granted those are the marvel letters that marvel is choosing yeah. to highlight because they want the story to be represented that way right they want mm -hmm. it to be a moving story they want it to be politically important they want to take that pat on the back but again at the same time this is a like margaret thatcher was just at the tail end of her power at this time mm -hmm. like it was just a few years earlier that she's you know voicing the support for apartheid and everything so to do this in the british x-men comic to talk about it at all it still matters given what the cultural context and was she's relatively powerful even in america i mean she's yeah 1989 we are, well, actually, this is end of 1989. We're yeah. a year out of Reagan being president. That's mm -hmm. it. And, you know, she was a staunch ally. So to, I mean, like Anna said, to be charitable, she's a racist. Yeah. But like yeah. that's not the way that's not the way she was looked at. So the acknowledgement of it all at it all was just I, I think we're, we're talking about the funniness of it, right? But like the alternative that I can that I can see the closest from Marvel anyway in this era, which is a few years earlier, I guess is God loves man kills. Like I I don't know they're not taking many swings at this yet. Do I wish that in 1989 Luke Cage season one on Netflix had been available? Yeah, yeah, I do. But it wasn't right, so I don't know. So, so like that's I don't know what I don't know what else to do with that. So it's weird for me. It's just it is very weird because I do think that um yeah, there's some weird humor. Yeah, he loses. Yeah, he gets turned into a literal crocodile. But if if you don't do that, does this story even get published, or does it sit on a shelf in Claremont's attic somewhere, waiting for Andrew to discover it thirty years later when you're doing? <laughs> like, I mean, like that's, I mean, like that that would be all the alternative, right? Yeah, and I mean, I will say that I don't even know, sort of my place to say that, but I do find them there be something, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but something moving about the fact that Doc Rock doesn't succeed because 
it wouldn't be realistic to punch racism in the face and succeed. I mean, the fact that the forces of British imperialism do actually win. I mean, Jamie kind of wins because he's Jamie Braddock and he wins because he's got these magic powers as well. But it's this connection to Brian that, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He literally pulls strings to keep racism intact. Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about Jamie Braddock's role in this allegory? (laughs) Yeah, we certainly can. Okay, so... so... We've talked about this before. The, the best monsters are symbolic of concepts that can't be easily personified. Jamie Braddock, to me, is a perfect representation of the kind of imperialist privilege that we might talk about when we talk about Mark Thatcher. You have someone who is universally powerful and has no sense of consequence. Like, literally, he doesn't have a sense of consequence. Um, so when you sort of speak to that in the abstract, it's a commentary on privilege. Um, but when you connect it to this apartheid allegory, it's a commentary on a sort of cultural indifference empowered by privilege that I think really actually works. And there's a lot of elements to Jamie that contribute to it, how imposing he is, how um, his weird state of bliss where he's always saying I'm happy, even the sexual component of, of him walking around in a thong. Um, I don't know. I, for, for me, Jamie really works within that allegory. And then even more broadly, I, I like him as a villain. I, I think he's genuinely terrifying. Um, when handled well. And he's a very appropriate kind of villain for Excalibur in terms of this being a cross-dimensional, reality-hopping, reality-bending, genre-bending team, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's also interesting that Excalibur is absent for this, right? Like, there's there's the connection that Anna made earlier between, obviously, Jamie and Brian, right? But in many ways, having Jamie as a foil keeps us from actually interrogating Brian's own complicity in these colonialist projects, right? Because we've now created an, a, a villain that is, in some ways, set at a distance from Brian and the team, at least in this issue, right, that doesn't hold them accountable in the same ways for their participation in this, right? So there is something really fraught also about the fact that we can't have this critique of Captain Britain himself. Yeah, and you understand why they would do that, of course, sure, right? Of course, to try to protect course. their character. I mean, Brian is taking up the mantle of the Lone Ranger, so there's something <laughs> we could dig for there, but that would be a charitable connection. He's also Captain yeah. Communism, so, you know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Was it Comrade Captain, I think, actually is the word? Right? Whatever they called him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wish that I could say that I felt like Captain Britain's implication in JV's evil was really teased out in a way that I find satisfactory in future issues. I can't say that. Yeah. But I do like the those of us who have read the um, Delano Davis story where Brian leaves him behind in Africa. Like, that is sort of an important context yeah. for this. And it's unfair because, I mean, you know, we can't expect readers who are reading this then to have that. But it was like he realizes that his brother was implicated in these things and he's just like nah man i'm leaving you to justice i don't freaking care so he had done that previously but he anyway this is like the revelation of jamie's mutant powers which is kind of important because that had not been present previously and yeah i was sort of surprised by that when i realized that but um so this is a big status quo change for like the braddocks in general and definitely for this series moving forward it's kind of cool too to have a, a villain to brian who is in some ways righteous because yeah his brother left him to be tortured you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So having that sense of um, Jamie uh, having sort of a, an aspect of reckoning for Brian makes him all the more threatening to me. Yeah. And it's partly Brian's fault because it's this experience of torture that kind of apparently somehow unlocks Jamie's mutant powers. So yeah. it is kind of Brian's fault as well. Like he did leave him to justice, which in a sense is righteous. And yet yeah. this is his cross to bear as well. He's the de- Well, Jamie is the definition of privilege. He is literally privileged, you know, nigh aristocracy from Britain. In the most literal definition, but also he has a legitimate human gripe with Brian. But his legitimate human gripe with Brian is, I broke every law in the world and my brother let me go, you know, like, let me get punished for it. So now I'm mad. It's a human thing, but the... The privilege in the modern, you know, academic sense of the word, the privilege inherent in Jamie for, you know, having the gall to be upset for how dare you, you know, <laughs> allow me to be punished for my actions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that is that is it is a picture of what we now call and not really a term yet in 1989, but what we now call, you know, white grievance like that's what he's doing in the, at this point. He is mad because someone allowed him to be caught at doing something wrong and punished for it and how dare you don't you know who yeah. i am at any rate i am happy that we're getting at least some tentative reckoning with sort of the colonial context of this series because it has been something that we've complained about in previous episodes about sort of how white and out of touch this version of you know britain and british identity and what it means to be the national champion of britain so 
at the very least, I'm appreciative of the effort. I will put it that way. Do we want to move on and talk about some of the, I don't want to say funner aspects because I've enjoyed this <laughs> conversation too, but I definitely want to talk about this Kurt Brian thing. And I think that there's actually, yeah. despite that only being two panels, a lot of interesting stuff that we could talk oh, about here. So and I think all of us are sort of well-equipped to have a unique perspective on it. But I will let you, Nick, guest privilege, take the first crack at it. So what happens in the Kurt and Brian scene in your reading of it and why does it matter? Okay, well, before I actually address that question i do want to just mention that there's this is a nice segue perhaps into that scene because this is the moment also uh, or the lead up to this moment at least is the moment in which the excalibur team conversation and the panels and their storyline is also engaging with a colonialist legacy although i think with much less success in the idea of flipping this idea of having british natives and the sort of civilized americans etc so there's there is a tie here i think in this moment between what we were talking about before and these panels. That being said, for me, one of the things I love about this is that this is the moment in which maybe most clearly in Excalibur, we can go back to somebody like a Sedgwick, right, or a Gerard, and think about the fact that maybe this love triangle, Kurt, uh, Megan, Brian, isn't really about always setting up Megan and Brian for the end, but it's actually about the fact that Kurt and Brian maybe want to rail each other at some point. Um, <laughs> and, and to be honest, and I want to say this, and I, I actually mean this seriously, that this is a moment in which maybe Brian is uncomfortable with the fact that he's learning that he's a bottom, right? Like, there's something really interesting <laughs> going on here between yeah, the I two of them, because what we have seen this entire series right is both of them modeling very different performances of masculinity right and kurt's masculinity and brian's masculinity are both you know and sometimes hyperbolic versions of themselves, right? Kurt as this sort of swashbuckling gentleman, sexy bathtub guy, right? Um, Brian as this sort of, you know, is that how we refer to him? That's how we refer to him, right? Um, yep, yep. And then we've got Brian, who is this sort of like, you know, hyper, almost you know, football player-esque, you know, character with the big muscles, who's actually weirdly uncomfortable, perhaps, with his own body as a spectacle, etc., and what we learn is that, you know, even though both these masculinities perhaps are, to some extent, very queer in their performances, is that Kurt's swashbuckling and that version of masculinity is much more comfortable with the homosocial and homoerotic tones that are part of it. And Brian's is deeply rooted in this sense of shame, in the same way that I think we saw him feel shame when his body was on display in New York, right? So there's something really interesting about this moment being about these competing masculinities and whatever narrative of desire exists between them and not strictly about sort of this narrative of who gets Megan or who ends up with Megan or what is Megan's trajectory going to be. And so for me, this, this scene is actually really interesting as a, as a space for a deeper queer reading of this series than we perhaps have seen up to this point. Yeah. It really adds a lot of potential layers to the love triangle in the sense of, even if we don't want to go as far as that there being sexual, sexual tension between Kurt and Brian, because it's not really something we see in like sort of previous issues or later ones but at the very least we have Megan modeling her appearance partly after Brian so I mean that aspect of it is really intriguing to me and I sort of like after this one brief scene I'm like oh I would love to add that other like layer of complexity to this I don't <laughs> think we get it but the idea intrigues me a great deal Megan gets dressed up right we get to see this other version of Megan who is basically dressed as Brian we do get to see versions of Megan that look like Nightcrawler right like there is a real sense that both of them are competing for each other in ways here that I think are really worth pursuing a little bit. Yeah, that's true. The way that she kind of performs these two men in ways that attract them to reflections of themselves. There's a exactly. lot going on there. Yes. Oh. We should note that Megan also validates the Brian Megan relationship. The Captain Britain woman talks about how they're like, you know, destined for happiness together. And I hate that because. I was enjoying the tension between Megan, Nightcrawler, and Brian. Yeah, I wasn't fond of that moment either. That really kind of undercuts a lot that's wonderful about this previous moment within the same issue of this comic. I mean, in terms of something like, I mean, we can talk about sort of the representational qualities of drag, though, and what that does for us. Like, drag is not automatically like a progressive gesture in any type of media, right? It can be played for comedy in ways that can be very transphobic, or like in various ways. Do we think that that's a problem here? Like, how is this scene kind of navigating that? Is there any of that kind of transphobic element? Is there kind of like it being played as a joke in ways that could be homophobic? What do you think? I have so many. I, I'm, I'm going to try to be charitable here because I like it, right? The most important thing that I think may, possibly Brian ever says in the entire run of Excalibur is you make such an attractive woman, Nightcrawler, because yeah. it's sincere. 
like I, yeah. I don't see it as a joke. I'm just looking mm -hmm. at this panel. It looks like he says you make quite an attractive ho saloon hostess, Nightcrawler. And in case you're wondering if it's a joke, because you know he does look ridiculous in the in the image that Davis drew for him. He's you know he's o overtly fabulous. You know with with he's blue. He's got the massive wig on. He's not trying to pass. He's trying to be a drag queen, right? And yet, and yet clearly, if we are to believe that it, you know, that there was some story we didn't see and we air capitan quite the most attractive striking couple on the dance floor we must do it again so they apparently had some sort of adventure where either seriously or not they played into this and it was just fine and that while it's clearly defined you know designed to be funny i mean in the same panel megan's a frog and kitty is a water buffalo and we don't know how that happened so um so there's clearly <laughs> there's clearly a joke going on here oh and alistair is in you know tidy whitey's on a totem pole, totem pole with widget i don't know what that story is we never find out what that story is but it's sincere and the sincerity of it makes it work for i mean i am not a transgender individual right so i can't say whether i can't say that no one's going to be offended by it i can imagine someone might be and if you are that is a valid feeling i don't want to i don't want to downplay that um any more so than i would want you know with race or sexuality or anything else but for me it feels like this was a sincere normalizing of queer sexuality in a way that as much as i love this book it doesn't always do uh, yeah. <laughs> there are some problematic i mean i think it's very progressive for its time i think it's very progressive for today in a lot of ways but it has its problems and uh, and for me this isn't one of them this is honest and again it's two panels it's two panels where i mm -hmm. don't feel like kurt and brian are picking on each other i think it's more <laughs> of a at, you know am i really shipping them no but i think at the very last at the very least there is a bro moment of wow i can't believe we pulled that off we're awesome which is you know if we if we look at them as two opposing visions of masculinity there's a respect there that if nothing else the homosocial bond there is important mm -hmm. i mean for me it's like the lack of shame expressed by kurt in particular you know he's not responding with like a you gay quip or something he's just being like yeah we looked awesome out there you know like which is it reminds me of an, uh, a moment from uncanny 204 where we have arcade in drag and kurt has kind of a little exchange with him there that i've thought a lot too about like whether that's homophobic or whether it's not but i kind of side on the fact of it's not the scene is a little bit different but i do think that the genuineness of it and like not going to sort of the easy jokeness of it and sort of playing up the genuine respect that they might have for each other within this moment is part of how it becomes like a little bit better but I think you're right that it's like definitely not something that we can say is offensive or isn't offensive but at the very least it's an interesting scene I completely agree with both of you. I, I do think that the sort of um, comedic context surrounding the scene is probably how they got it past the censors. And they can say, no, this is just some like it hot as a joke, um, even though the genuineness that Mav reads there is pretty clearly there right yeah and i just the contrasting masculinities too like i mean i just i can't sort of emphasize enough like how important it is to the characters of both of them that it's sort of like yeah. brian has a little bit of discomfort with his like ahem anyway and then kurt being the one that doesn't have the discomfort that really plays into the personalities of both of them like to me it feels like almost like a wake-up moment for brian but for kurt this is just tuesday i think it's important yeah. that brian brought it up i i, mm -hmm. I mean brian mm -hmm. started oh, yeah. this conversation which i think matters because you're right for kurt this is tuesday fine but for brian Ryan, he's like, you know what? You looked hot, Kurt. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going to say it. You looked hot. And I, I think that's a huge progressive moment for him that I think works for normalization. And I think Andrew's right. I think it happens because it's it's a joke, which gets it past the censors. It's two panels. And, you know, they have at least three or four different worlds that they hit during here and we don't get to see them. Uh, this book is supposed to imply to us that there are, you know, just because we're only seeing 12 issues of Cross Time Caper, they presumably visit like 50 worlds. They're just jaunting around from from spot to spot. And we know that to be the case from later issues where, you know, things have been are, are inserted as well. So I think we're supposed to see that. And he says, you know, we've never encountered another phoenix. You know, the, you, you know, we we get bits like that on and off throughout this series. So I feel like there's important growth there. The other one that I'd want to point out is I think the monster scene with Phoenix and uh, Megan tied to the table and Vampire Kitty, I think, does a lot of the same work of, look, you know, we are coming to understand ourselves as individuals in, in a way that we hadn't before. And they can only do that, as you point out, in a space like the Crosstime Caper, where they're constantly visiting worlds, dimensions, etc., that are destabilizing to their view of what is normative, right? And I think that that sort of 
of destabilizing of the normative is what makes this the cross time caper in general such a potentially queer text in some ways, right? That um, and we see here with Brian, and I think you point out right, like he's he brings it up, right? Like there's something about him getting outside of this very narrow vision of himself just as Captain Britain on the 616, right, that is liberating in some ways and allows him to maybe make this comment with some sincerity rather than just a throw-aside joke, right? And I think that's really important, like you point out. I mean, it's almost like him understanding what Megan sees in Kurt is kind of a good thing for him, <laughs> like on some level. I mean, let's talk about some of the other... Well, before we get off of that, I mean, let's talk about some of the... Do we want to talk about the indigeneity stuff in that scene? like a little bit more because I mean you mentioned it Nick but it might be worth sort of saying a couple of other comments about it just in terms of some of the problematics of sort of using exoticism to let these characters have these emotional growth moments I mean you brought it up a little bit Nick but do you want to expand on that a little bit before we move on well I just think it's it's interesting here that when we have you know first of all we're establishing a dichotomy here that you know America as the savage space Britain as this sort of pinnacle of civilization which obviously excludes large portions of the globe when we play with that and even in trying to flip that script here which i think is meant as some sort of critique of colonialism on some level probably by creators right it actually erases indigenous peoples in the americas right like what we have here is basically a bunch of white folks playing indian um to use that term that critical term right and so i think that there is what we might have seen as care or at least a, a, a really genuine thoughtful attempt with doc crock right we are not seeing here in this particular oh. moment it's, it's being played off as a joke. Um, and again, it's interesting because this is a moment where we actually have Brian in the scene, so he doesn't have to be implicated in the same way as that Jamie does in the other narrative that's taking place in this issue. So I just think it's worth mentioning that this becomes an act of indigenous erasure in and of itself, even though it's probably meant as an attempt to critique colonialism on some level. You thought they were. You thought they were white people. I thought they were supposed. Hmm. Okay. I mean, and, and I don't know because I I always read it as you know just the way he draws, but I assumed they were supposed to be indigenous Americans, but in but an indigenous Europeans because of the way I took Brian at face value for as problematic as the way as he stated it when he says America is the font of civilization and Europe the wild untamed frontier. I assumed that those were supposed to be indigenous Europeans, not white men playing savages in quotes it is problematic i agree with you there but i just i read it the exact opposite way as though it was just like but for a turn of circumstance you know the native americans they would be the leaders of civilization and we would be the savages and i keep using that word on purpose because that's the way brian sees it <laughs> which is problematic but you know it's sort of a i'm still better than you but i get it kind of moment <laughs> yeah and i think that the, the language there though of the sort of bagad she's shooting at us and hardly cricket old top and feller could get itself punctured while Right, the sort of play at sort of a British accent is very much a play at a white British accent. Right, and so for me, I read them as white Brits who are dressing up as, in this sense, um, in this reality. Right, they're dressing up in in what we now consider Native American garb, or at least a stereotyped version of that. So I don't see this as Indigenous Europeans, right, and I don't see in any of the coloring any good indication that that would be the case either. Yeah. Um, and so for me, like this seems like erasing indigeneity in order to imagine the sort of dichotomy of the savage and the civilized that white people have constructed as still being a strictly white province gotcha yeah i can't really argue against that the other thing we wanted to ask and we'll like put it to our twitter or whatever was that do the characters that, so the totem pole is the characters that they're playing in the scenario that we don't get to see so we're assuming that there's some kind of thing where they were pretending to be gods in the scenario or something like that but do those characters correspond to like pop culture figures that we're not aware of and it could be somebody in our british audience is going to know that we tried to look into it we couldn't figure it out so if that is the case tweet at us we're happy to know about it yeah i i don't know i i don't get the because you know again we've got water buffalo frog saloon hostess and then lone ranger and tonto problematic as it is i i don't know what they're going for <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure either. So we were thinking it was a reference to something. Do we want to touch briefly on some of the other on any of the other realities that they jump into? Just I have to mention that we talked about shipping Kitty and Kurt on a previous episode, and I'm clear I do not ship them in Excalibur. The age difference would be creepy, and I'm not doing 
saying that. Holy shit, they look nice together when Kitty's vampire Kitty and he's standing with her in the doorway. <laughs> if I just take that image isolated from everything else, it's a lovely image. I, this is again, and, and keep in mind for the listener, I am 15 when I read this the first time. Vampire Kitty was a great picture. <laughs> yeah. um, and as much as yeah. we've talked about Goblin Princess Megan, and there's, you know, something clearly Alan Davis in 1989 has sort of a you know a fetishistic type <laughs> and in, that yeah. he's going for and and there's something that goes into this but i loved that outfit then and now reading it as a grown-up as a real life grown-up i get that there's something to this where this is where i said i think she has for only having six lines in this book i think she has you know a lot of character development here where as a vampire and vampirism is a way that you set your you know you you release your inhibitions and you set your sexuality free that's how vampirism is portrayed in everything from from interview with the vampire to Nosferatu to the original Dracula to True Blood. That, that's what vampirism does. And if that's the case, Kitty is owning her sexuality here and straight up saying that she wants Alistair. I think it's important that she does this. I think it's important that she owns her sexuality, even if only for a moment, even if it goes away like next book. Also, Brian's a duck. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just love. It's pretty good. Yeah. I know, yeah. The, he's got like the little uniform with his little wings integrated and everything too, with like the little flipper boots. It's like really well done. <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts, Andrew, on any of these other realities that go to your favorite moments? Um, I think in light of what we're talking about, it, it maybe is important to note that a lot of the realities they're passing through are not actual historical realities. They're specifically fictional realities. Like it's the idea of um um the idea that they're passing through sort of um iconic cultural touchstones rather than alternate realities and i think that maybe speaks to the sort of the silliness of the issue a little bit but i mean it gets us back to the sort of the problematicness of like the incorporation of indigeneity right to incorporate yeah. that on a pop culture level and not on a real level yeah exactly. <laughs> oh i don't know why i'm laughing it's a dark humor laugh i promise this uh scene involving the british native americans is bad for all of the reasons nick already mentioned anyway moving on so the last thing that i want to do is highlight a letter from the sword strokes letters page which we like to do where there is something particularly interesting in the letters page um so this one brought up a lot of the questions that we had about some of the nazi issues and particularly not that i want to get talking about that again but bringing up some of the problems that we had with sort of the motivation of some of the Lightning Force member characters. So this letter is from Megan Maroney, address withheld. And she says, As far as the Lightning Squad's parallel universe is concerned, shouldn't Kurt be in evidence? After all, our Kurt was raised by gypsies, a word people used at the time, um, and any history buff knows that they were sent to the camps before the Jews were. Therefore, wouldn't alternate Kurt have suffered incredible, possibly fatal persecution, or were there no gypsies, we say Roma now, left alive when Kurt was born to raise him, and thus he was brought up by genetic researches does that get me a no prize also though i know little about captain britain i am given to understand that he was given powers by merlin because he so embodied the best ideals of britain and king arthur it stands to reason then that those hauptmen england would never have received those powers in the first place since being a hitman for der Fuhrer is not the best example of might makes right that i can think of is hauptmen england then a successful experiment in aryan supremacy genetically engineered to be so strong etc and she demands a second no prize <laughs> i would however like to heap compliments on your storylines your artwork and most of all on the one man that makes it all worthwhile kurt wagner the rest of the team especially kitty are all wonderful but nightcrawler is not only a swashbuckling romantic with a genuine appreciation for any female in a skirt he's blue and has wonderful bone structure anyway i react to a soft german accent the way jamie lee curtis responded to russian in a fish called wanda i'll tell you what i'll trade my no prizes in for this if kurt ever needs a vacation away from the english drizzle i'll gladly keep him entertained in florida i've got an extra toothbrush and he's better than a no prize any day. <laughs> Sign Megan Papard from the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, the, the editorial response, though, to it. So you have some interesting ideas to the origins of Nightcrawler and Hauptman England, Megan. The thing about alternate timelines is that they can make the improbable a reality. A good example of that is Lightning Squad. Good examples of those types of alternate timelines can be found monthly in What If, and it totally sidesteps all of her criticisms, which are very similar to the criticisms that <laughs> we had, which was like, yeah, this doesn't really make sense logically, and what was the backstory of these characters? And they're like, 
well, in an alternate timeline, anything can happen. Therefore, we're always correct. And you're like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> That's such a cheap shot. I don't like that justification. Chaos Theory says, Butterfly Effect says that if you literally any change, none of us should exist. So whatever. It's, it's I get that that's away. technically true, but yeah, yeah, it's not narratively satisfying. No, not at all. It's they felt like if there was no Kurt, they'd have no story. That's why. <laughs> That's the yeah, reason. Yeah, like yeah. literally any the only story I can think of that deals with the ramifications of changes to the time stream, you know, making massive changes is the I don't remember if it's uh, the Time Traveler's Wife or if it's about time. I think it's about time. Rachel McAdams stars in two or actually three movies where she plays <laughs> the girlfriend of a time traveler and it's one of the three and oh my god, she just does this thing, but I believe it's out about time where you find out that literally tweaking even a little tiny detail it changes what future grandchildren of somebody is are, are because just a different sperm reached the egg at, at a random moment right like just just delaying somebody by a few seconds so yeah kurt shouldn't exist it's fine <laughs> whatever yeah but then we're seeing <laughs> yeah. like the reason that the person exists and we didn't get that anyway i don't want to relitigate the no. whole nazi storyline we're past it um there was a promise in the same letters page that don't worry we're not done with lightning force i'm like oh really oh yeah we're not <laughs> oh yeah it's what everybody was clamoring for but um, there's also a lot but... of talk of no prizes which is gonna matter in in two months or two two weeks for us i don't know <laughs> comes up in in storyline <laughs> yes it does mm -hmm. Only you're at my side, my old friend, to give me courage. There are no war tricks that will fool Mordred and Morgana. More than I ever did, I need you now. Where are you, Merlin? only you could see me wield Excalibur once more. Anyway, we will end things there, I think. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you'd like to plug a final time for our listeners? What work of yours should they check out and where can they find it? Um, so, I mean, I, I publish in different venues. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I do contribute regularly to the middle spaces. So if you're looking for a variety of my takes on popular culture, that'll happen there. Uh, you can also find me online at anymiller.com, uh, my website, uh, where I try to keep things updated when I have the opportunity. And yeah, uh, also on Twitter at, at Uncanny Dazzler if you're looking for me. We will link all of those things in our show notes. Thank you so much. Nick. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 17, in which we'll be discussing Excalibur number 16, Warlord. Which, you guys, I am so excited. I got to hear <laughs> and saw the next one teased, and I was like, I can't even believe it's, the it's podcast the made it to Excalibur 16. <laughs> there was a possibility we wouldn't make it this far, and we did. And this is like all my birthdays and Christmases came We're not once. quitting after 16, are we? Like, this is, this is not the end of the show. We're not just... No. This wasn't just We're a ploy to get us to Excalibur 16. <laughs> no, I'm just gonna get, I'm just gonna get excited about the next night, great Nightcrawler okay. issue, because we're not done with them. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. So if you haven't read it, it is a definitive sexy Nightcrawler issue, a definitive Nightcrawler issue in general. Um, not uncomplicatedly, which we will talk about, but yeah, he's got his mojo going on in that issue. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can watch via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras and via Twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another splendid conversation. Thank you, Nick, for lending us your many talents. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.